So today is the last in our sermon series through the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've made it all the way through the book. Uh, well done. Uh, it's been a great journey looking at various uh, topics that have come out uh, from the book. And this morning we're going to have a look at the last part of chapter 5. And so if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5. And we're going to look at verse 16 through 28. Let's have a look. Paul says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. May God himself The God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with you. This is God's word. When I was growing up, our main uh, method of communication with my grandparents in England was through post. Anyone remember the postal service? Real post with actual stamps. And uh, we, we used to do that because phone calls were just too expensive when I was growing up. And my parents would have the horrors as we'd phone Granny for her birthday, and it would be, I'm fine, thank you, how are you, uh, you know, 20 rand a minute or whatever it was. So we had to rely on letters, and it always amused me or it boggled my mind that uh, it took a letter two weeks to get here, so the news that we read was two weeks old. And every Sunday, my mom would gather us all together, and we'd read my grandmother's letter with all of the news from two weeks ago. And then on a Sunday afternoon, my mom would sit down and she would type on a typewriter. Those of you who are young, a typewriter is kind of a a computer and printer combined. Uh, she (laughs) She would type a letter to my grandmother giving all of our news, which would eventually reach her in two weeks' time. And sometimes the letters would cross over and it was really interesting. Sometimes, in order to save money, my Yorkshire grandmother would use an aerogram. Anyone remember what an aerogram was? Okay, yeah, some of you. So an aerogram is like an A4 piece of paper, which is uh, you write on it and then you fold it in three and then you stick it down on all three sides. A little bit like those traffic fines that you get, or or so I've I've been told. (laughs) Now, the thing about an aerogram was that you only had a certain amount of space that you could use for your letter. And so I remember receiving aerograms from my grandmother that that were written Everywhere, you know, every tiny little blank space on the aerogram, next to the stamp, up the sides, uh, every space uh, was used up. And it would sometimes be really interesting that my grand would start her aerograms with fairly large writing, and then the writing would get smaller and smaller and smaller as you got towards the end. And when you read these last few verses of Paul's letter, you get a feeling that this is almost like an aerogram, that Paul is running out of space and he fires off a whole lot of final instructions to these Christians. 
Uh, besides Paul's longer prayer in verses 23 and 24, there are 11 short, sharp commands, most of them just a few uh, words long. As I said, the NIV heading for this section is final instructions. And the implication is that these verses are sort of unrelated. They're just a whole lot of miscellaneous commands lumped together at the end of the letter, a little bit like a mother's aerogram to her son at university. You know, make sure you're eating healthily. Make sure you're getting eight hours of sleep a night. Don't forget to floss. Uh, But actually, when you look at these verses more carefully, you'll see that they're not just a bunch of unrelated random commands, but they do have a theme. Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians about their gathered times of worship. I guess our equivalent would be our morning services or our small group Bible studies. And Paul names four things that are to characterize their meeting together. Now, we know that Paul is addressing the topic of public worship rather than just private worship because all of the verbs are plural. Uh, Literally, these verses say, you all rejoice, or all of you pray continually, or all of you give thanks. And we also know that Paul is addressing public worship rather than just private worship, because some of the things he describes you just can't do on your own, like receiving prophecy or testing prophecy. That's not something you can do alone. And you certainly can't greet one another with a holy kiss on your own. All that that Paul is saying in that verse is that we should find culturally and appropriate ways in which to express our love for one another. Uh, That's how they greeted one another in those days, and the men kissed the men and the women kissed the women. Um, But uh, just find a culturally appropriate way in which we can express practically our love for one another. However, back to the main point of the sermon. Paul speaks about four things that are to characterize our life together as a community, our life together when we meet for worship. And let's look at these one at a time. Firstly, Paul says that our meetings together are to be characterized by joy. Verse 16, be joyful always. Our meetings are meant to be characterized by joy, but but what is Christian joy? I remember reading about a couple who went to a restaurant for a meal And the restaurant was extremely busy. You had these waiters and waitresses rushing around. Everyone looked stressed and harassed. It was a Friday night, incredibly busy. Everyone was was just looking completely stressed out, except one waiter who happened to be uh, this couple's waiter. Um, He was uh, wearing glasses. He was just as busy as everybody else, but he had this permanent grin uh, attached to his face. And no matter what happened around him, he kept on smiling. And at the end of the meal, when it came time for this couple to leave, uh, the man stopped uh, their wait and he said to them, you're amazing. Everybody else here is looking frazzled and harassed, yet you're still smiling. And the waiter stopped smiling for a moment and he held the bridge of his glasses up and he said, well, actually, it's the only way I can keep my glasses on. (laughs) Is that what Christian joy is? doesn't mean that as Christians we're always to be happy and there should be a permanent smile on our, on our faces. Now, I think this verse has to be interpreted in the light of Philippians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. 
These Christians in Thessalonica had very little to be happy about. They were undergoing persecution and imprisonment, even death. Uh, Paul refers to it in chapter 1. He speaks of severe suffering. There was very little happiness, but there was great joy. Joy because in the words of chapter 1, they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Paul isn't ordering us to be happy. What he's asking us to do do is to reflect on God and who he is and what he has done for us, which will always lead to genuine joy. That's what we do in our worship services as we read scripture, as we pray. We reflect on God's character and it produces joy. Secondly, Paul says that our meetings together are to be characterized by prayer. Verse 17, pray continually. In verse 25, Paul says, brothers and sisters, pray for us. In prayer, we express our dependency on God. We acknowledge that he is God in heaven and that we need him. We need his forgiveness. We need his help. We need his strength, his healing. How sad to come into church and not spend time speaking with God. I'm glad it doesn't happen in our church services. Uh, Pastor John Stutt says this about this verse. He says, we should be praying for our own church members far and near, for the church throughout the world, its leaders, its adherence to the truth of God's revelation, its holiness, unity, and mission. For our nation, Parliament and government, and for a just, free, compassionate, and participatory society. For world mission, especially for places and peoples resistant to the gospel. For peace, justice, and environmental stewardship. And for the poor, the oppressed, the hungry, the homeless, and the sick. I sometimes wonder if the comparatively slow progress towards world peace, world equity, and world evangelization is not due more than anything else to the prayerlessness of the people of God. I'm so glad that that's not true of us, that we have opportunities to pray in our services, whether that's led prayer from the front, whether that's prayer in an open meeting, or sometimes when uh, Bernadette and Genevieve get us to break up into small groups and to pray. We don't have to be apologetic or embarrassed about it because there might be visitors in our church. Paul expects that our times together are going to be characterized by prayer. I also think there's an individual um, application of that verse to our lives as well, where Paul says, pray continually. As individuals, we can learn to pray continually. I was reading a book by Tom Wright on the life of the Apostle Paul. At one point in the book, uh, Tom Wright says this, while he was traveling on the sea, on the roads, Paul prayed. We know this. When he tells people that they should never stop praying, this can hardly be something that applies to everyone else but not himself. We can imagine Paul praying as he and his friends break bread in Jesus' name, 
praying as he waits for the next ship, for the turn of the tide, for the right weather to sail. Praying for sick friends and for newly founded little churches. Praying as he makes his way toward what may be a wonderful reunion with old friends or an awkward confrontation with old enemies. And that picture of Paul continually praying in between writing letters and visiting churches really encouraged me and challenged me. And I'm finding that more and more in my life, I'm trying to pray continually, not just in the morning at the beginning of the day, but before I write an email or before I take a phone call, before I visit with someone, sometimes even while I'm visiting with someone. Lord, help me to listen here. Lord, help me to be a blessing here. Prayer is just such an amazing gift that we can pray for people on the other side of the world. We can pray for people and God's Holy Spirit is able to reach parts of their hearts and their minds that we can't possibly reach. Our our meetings together, our, our lives as individual Christians are to be characterized by prayer. Thirdly, Paul says that our meetings together are to be characterized by thanksgiving. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Thanksgiving is a major theme throughout the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testaments. In Psalm 103, the psalmist prays, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. We thank God for the material benefits that we've received from him. The gift of sight, the gift of hearing, gift of literacy, our homes, our families, our possessions, and the 10,000 other things that we have to be thankful for. I remember once reading uh, where a man asked the question, what would happen if God were to take from us the things for which we had not yet thanked him? What would we have left? We will never run out of things to thank God for. We're thankful to God for our material blessings, and we're supremely thankful to God for all he has done for us in Christ Jesus. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh, oh my soul. Or as Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There is so much to be thankful for. You know, thanksgiving is not only a biblical command, it's also psychologically healthy. It's a good way to live. Uh, Regular thanksgiving can help us avoid the traps of pettiness and entitlement and pride and discontent and envy and greed. Notice Paul says that we're to give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't say that we're to give thanks for all circumstances. We can't rejoice in evil. We can't rejoice in things that displease God. But we are to remain thankful in 
all circumstances. Now, our circumstances can often blind us to the good gifts that God has given us. And yet, even in the most difficult of circumstances, we can remind ourselves that I belong to God. I am His. He does love me. He has provided for me. And being thankful in all circumstances is also an encouragement to look down the road a bit with the eyes of faith and to see what will be. We believe that God does indeed work all things together for the good of those who love him, even though we can't necessarily see it at the time. I remember years ago uh, reading Edith Nesbitt's book, The Railway Children, to my own children when they were small. And towards the end of the book, one of the children, Peter, goes into his mother's uh, workroom where she's writing a story for a magazine. And he watches her for a moment, and then he says this to her. I say, said Peter musingly, wouldn't it be jolly if we were all in a book and you were writing it? Then you could make all sorts of jolly things happen and make Jim's legs get well at once and be all right tomorrow and father come home soon and... Wouldn't you like to be writing that book with all of us in it, Mother? Peter's mother put her arm around him suddenly and hugged him in silence for a minute. Then she said, Don't you think it's rather nice to think that we're in a book that God is writing? If I were writing a book, I might make mistakes. But God knows how to make the story end just right in the way that's best for us. Do you really believe that, Mother? Peter asked quietly. Yes, she said, I do believe it, almost always, except when I'm so sad that I can't believe anything. But even when I don't believe it, I know it's true, and I try to believe it. We're to give thanks in all circumstances, because this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. And so our meetings together are to be characterized by thankfulness. And fourthly, Paul says that our meetings together are to be characterized by attentiveness to the Word of God. And this idea is found in two places in this passage. Um, Firstly, from verse 20, uh, Paul says, Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Then in verse 27, he says, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. Actually, when you put those two verses together, it it can help us understand something quite important when it comes to the topic of prophecy. You know, when Paul is writing this letter, there is no such thing as the New Testament Scriptures. Uh, Paul is actually busy writing the New Testament Scriptures as he pens uh, these words. And you'll notice that he speaks with a level of authority that's just not present in other types of prophecy. I mean, he says here, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. That's quite astounding because in those days, the early believers would get together and they would read the Old Testament scriptures as the word of God. Paul now says, well, read my letter as you read the Old Testament scriptures. This letter is not only Paul's words to the Thessalonians, it's God's word to all believers at all times and in all places. 
It's also interesting when Paul speaks about other prophecy in the churches, he says, you know, well, test it, uh, reject what is bad, hold on to what is good. But he doesn't say that about his own words. He doesn't say, test what I'm saying. He speaks with authority. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read. In other words, there are no apostles or prophets today who are equal to the prophets and apostles of the Old and New Testament. They don't speak with the same authority. If there were, then we would have to listen to their words, write them down, and obey them. Their words would, would relate to the whole church. But that's not the case. In the book of Ephesians, Paul speaks about the church as having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That foundation has been laid. We can't add anything to that foundation. But we can build on it. And having said all of that, the New Testament says that God has given the gifts of prophecy to some members of his church. In 1 Thessalonians 14, Paul says that everyone who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening encouragement and comfort. And so God gives uh, some of his people a depth of insight into the scriptures and their meaning, which is why we get old and New Testament commentators and theologians. Or God gives uh, some people insight into scripture and its application to the modern world, which is where we get uh, teachers and pastors. He gives some people insight into God's particular will, for a particular people in a particular situation. And Paul says we're to do two things with this kind of prophecy. Firstly, he says we're to test this prophecy. Verses 21 and 22. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. So how do we test messages that purportedly come from God? We've got access to so much today in terms of CDs and books and DVDs and podcasts and Christian television. How do we test what is, what is true? Well, the New Testament actually gives us a number of tests. Uh, uh, Pastor John Stott describes some of these in his commentary, and I'll just mention them here. We don't have time to look at them in detail. But firstly, we, we test a sermon or a book or a message by seeing if it lines up with that foundation that we've spoken about. We, we test um, new messages with, with Scripture. In the book of Acts, we read about a group of men and women who tested Paul's preaching. Luke tells us that the Bereans received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Secondly, we test messages from God by what they have to say about Jesus. So in John chapter 4, uh, John speaks in the context of false prophecy, and he says, Dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. And so the question of a message is, does it recognize that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh? Thirdly, we can test a sermon or a book or a message by what it says about salvation. True prophecy proclaims salvation through faith in Jesus alone. Uh, Paul writes to the Galatians and he says to them, 
even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. And what was the gospel message that he proclaimed? A little bit earlier, a person is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, if there's any teaching that says Jesus plus, you know, Jesus plus good works, or Jesus plus this practice, or Jesus plus this belief, or Jesus plus this donation to my organization, we have to watch out. We're saved through faith in Jesus' finished work for us on the cross. And fourthly, we can test a sermon or a book or a message by the character of the speaker. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Watch out for false prophets. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. So what is the man or the woman's character like? Not, Not talking about sinless perfection, but we're talking about life in obedience to Christ's commands. That's why it's probably good to come along to a local congregation and get to know the local leaders because then we know their character as opposed to people that we see on the internet who we perhaps then don't know. So Paul says that we're to test prophecy. But secondly, he says that our testing of prophecy must never lead to contempt. Don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. We have to be attentive to the Word of God. We have to listen to what God might be saying to us and then put it into practice. And to me, great attention to God's Word involves careful thought and study and discernment. So our meetings together are to be characterized by joy, prayer, thanksgiving, attention to the Word of God, And all of this is done through the help of God's Holy Spirit. Right in the middle of these commands, Paul says to us in verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. As I say, this command comes right in the middle of the other commands, and it can refer either to the commands before it or the commands after it. In other words, Paul could be saying, let the Holy Spirit move you to joy and to prayer and to thanksgiving. Don't quench him. Or he could be saying, let the Holy Spirit speak to you through his word and listen to his voice. Don't quench him. Probably Paul means both. You know, let the Holy Spirit speak to you through his word. Listen to him. Don't quench him. And let the Holy Spirit move you to respond to his word in praise, in prayer, in thanksgiving. Do not quench him. The word quench uh, was often used of extinguishing uh, a light or extinguishing a fire. And that's why the old NIV translation translates this, do not put out the Spirit's fire. And I think that when we, when we think of that verse, we tend to think in terms of enthusiasm, fire, enthusiasm. And we're saying, you know, don't, don't put out the Spirit's enthusiasm. But fire also refers to purification, In fact, when John the Baptist spoke about the one who was going to come and baptize people in the Holy Spirit, he said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So the Holy Spirit doesn't just enthuse us and equip us, he also purifies us. Because he's the Holy Spirit, he makes us. Holy. 
And Paul has had an awful lot to say about holiness in this book of 1 Thessalonians. And now, in fact, he ends the letter by speaking about holiness. He says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. And so when Paul says here, don't quench the Holy Spirit, he's telling us not to resist God's sanctifying work in our lives, not to resist the Holy Spirit's making us more like Jesus, because it's possible for us to do that. I think there's only a few Mondays left until Christmas. It's a very depressing thought in one sense. One of the things that we're going to focus on at Christmas is the riskiness that God took in becoming a human being, coming down to earth, the creator of the universe becoming an embryo, God being willing to be touched and handled as well as spat upon and beaten and crucified. God took an incredible risk in becoming human. But there's another risk that God takes each and every day. It's the risk that God takes in entering our human hearts in the person of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit enters our dark and sinful and broken hearts, and it's a risk. The Bible tells us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit and quench the Holy Spirit and put out the Spirit's fire. God allows himself to be hurt by us all over again. And Paul tells us here, don't do it. Don't quench the Spirit. We're to cooperate with the Holy Spirit's job of making us more like Jesus. In other words, we're to deal with our stuff. All of us this morning, to a greater or lesser extent, have got stuff in our life that we need to deal with. And as we've gone through uh, this book of First Thessalonians, God has uh, highlighted so many different aspects of our Christian life. Uh, We've looked at topics like sexual immorality and Christian marriage and forgiveness and living to please God and holiness and living in the light of death, living in the light of Christ's return. And if over the past few weeks God has been prodding you, if he's been tugging at your heart, that is the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, don't quench that. Don't just leave that thought that you had in the, the church car park. Do something about it. One of the ways that we do things uh, with what the Holy Spirit is telling us is to consult with other believers, to speak to someone that you can trust. And all of us struggle in various ways, and God didn't intend us to struggle quietly, silently on our own. He's given us the gift of one another. And I know for myself uh, the tremendous freedom that comes from opening up my life to one other person on a regular basis. It brings such health and such healing. And if we can help you as a church, we'd, we'd love to do that. Don't quench the spirit. I remember hearing about a little boy who went along to one of those really old churches in England, and uh, on the wall there were some large plaques uh, with lists of names of men and women from the local village uh, who'd been killed in World War II. And the little boy looked at this list of names and he said to his dad, Dad, what's that list of names? And the father said, that's a list of names of people who died in service. 
The little boy thought for a moment and he said, Dad, was that the morning service or the evening service? <laughs> if, if you're anything like me, you probably come away from church on a Sunday morning and sometime during the course of the day, you'll say to your husband or your wife or your parents or someone, so what did you think of the service? That's the wrong question. Because it's not a question that any human being can actually answer. <laughs> the correct answer is, what did God think of the service? Was our time together as believers marked by joy and prayer and thanksgiving? Were we attentive to the Word of God? And in doing those things, were we sensitive to the Holy Spirit's presence among us? Did we grow as the people of God? And God grant that in our church, now and always, the answer to those questions would be yes.